So I'll start here with uh, a poem I wrote for you in this great, um, what, spring deluge of uh, the cascading waters. It's called Bones in the River. Rain cascading down, the heavens have opened, bundled up inside our own memories. Water rushing, moving through me swiftly, tiptoeing across the surface of this breathing, pointing towards our own hospitality. Destined to reach our own underground, a place where I can let the rain soak through my clothes, skin, flesh, to these very bones. Dharma, not different than the rain. Truth soaking through the layers of my own being. Truth soaking through the layers of my own being celebrating its silence and strength, reaching the marrow of our bones. All judgments left on the surface, the outward bathed in calmness, the inward resting in its original nature, the eyes smiling at all things. The no-name teacher comes, teaching us to hold nothing. Quoting, flow is possible, finally in a gentle voice, yet resistance, uncertainty, maybe the old small panic. I can't swim, I can't breathe, abandoning possibilities of freedom, totally forgetting that the river can't be stopped. Just molecules dancing towards infinity. Just molecules dancing towards infinity. Deep down, being earnest and loyal, opening to the cascade of remembering Dharma has touched these bones. knowing separateness to be untrue. The gift from these practices, simple trust. This surrendering and stillness, determining it's possible just to float in this aloneness of one's own river, determining it is possible just to float in the aloneness of one's own river, having been touched by all the small loves, knowing you, you belong to this place, knowing the smallest entry could give rise to this great love. You know, the one that holds everything and no thing. So tonight, I want to explore with you, really, uh, it's considered sometimes the bedrock uh, of these teachings, uh, in the sense that we have to somehow have this uh, relationship to this bedrock. And the bedrock is what we know as the three characteristics. And so I would like to explore what are called the three characteristics and their fundamentals. And also, uh, where do they go? And they go to what is known as the three subtle characteristics, which are not spoken about so much. And I will just try to uh, untangle a little bit uh, about them. So first, just to know, simple. Uh, Anicca, dukkha, anatta. This truth of uh, impermanence, uh, of suffering, of uh, no self. 
there's also subtle characteristics that as we explore these in their most common form and um, go deeper into them as we've been doing here, you know, we come to the subtleties. And the subtleties are referred to as uh, the characteristic first of sunyata, of emptiness, uh, of uh, tatat, which translates as suchness, and then the word atamayata, not there with the object. Okay, so this is what I would like to explore with you tonight. Now, um, just to start out this thing around bones in the river, where I start this. And one of the things that kind of brought me to this is this fact of writing this was the fact that uh, just about uh, two years ago, right after this retreat, uh, sometime in January, I'd, I'd been to Kailash and, and uh, had great, uh, you know, Oh, I'm very optimistic, so I take on all adventure uh, that is possible, you know. And I was also reading the other night, I was telling uh, Leela that uh, also they say uh, optimists don't live as long as those who are a little more careful. So I, I, I kind of get that, you know. So, um, but serious story here in the sense that uh, two years ago after I left this retreat, um, I had to go through this uh, medical procedure. And in January, I'd been told, you know, I should have it done. But being an optimist, I said, well, you know, fine, I'll just wait. So I waited, and I, I remember the first thing after this retreat, uh, I went in and had this biopsy, you know. And I was so clueless, you know, again, the kind of optimist, you know. Uh, I had uh, been around the world I don't know how many times. I had done all kinds of mountains, all kinds of things. And there was a part of me that was kind of adventuresome and fearless and all that. Um, So I went and I had the biopsy. And I remember afterwards this person was supposed to come pick me up. But they got the time wrong. So I remember sitting in the parking lot on the kind of the curb there going... You know, is there a message here? Am I missing something? You know, and I sat there and I kind of just dismissed it. And then uh, about 10 days later, I, I said, well, I better go in and see what's happening, you know. So I went to see this uh, doctor and he said, oh, you know, uh, you have cancer. And um, this tumor is 90%, uh, it's 90% malignant. And so I sat there and I was in complete, uh, I think, shock first that how could this be? You know, I should have some kind of intuition about this stuff, right? I've been teaching this for all these years. Um, I really had none, you know. So um, it was just something that uh, appeared. And then I remember going home and being alone in the house and, and starting this process of going, oh, uh, the first thing he said, well, you have to have a bone scan. And my father had died of prostate cancer, so I knew something about it, and it had gone into his bones. And I, uh, So I suddenly was sitting there for actually about five days of rehearsing all the things that go on. And, you know, knowing and not knowing are two different things. And this was one of those places where not knowing uh, was there. And so I looked at the practice, and the practice was fundamentally, there was parts of it that were still intact, and there were parts of it that were not intact. You know? And it was just that, that truth that our minds, uh, fabrication, how we fabricate. You know? And uh, it was a very uh, interesting process in the sense of, uh, of uh, recognizing this whole thing of how um, we can make up all sorts of things, you know. But when it comes down to, you know, kind of push comes to shove, it's a matter of how this practice really functions, you know. 
And it's looking at these, you know, again, the very basics of how this works, you know? And this whole truth of, of uh, Anicca impermanence and kind of feeling my way into it. And I remember, uh, in, I guess it was in 71, I came back and I don't know how long I'd been here. I'd just come back for, I was coming back for a short time. And uh, the two people I wanted to see were uh, to see Suzuki Roshi uh, at Zen Center and Chogyam uh, Trungpa Rinpoche. And I came back and uh, Suzuki Roshi had died, you know, of bone cancer. And there was a lot of sort of rumor and stuff going around right at that time, you know, and I went to his funeral and it was, you know, it was an incredible experience of, uh, I can just say, uh, remarkable uh, brocade, you know, uh, really uh, something I had no idea in some sense when I'd seen him before how he's such a simple and uh, an easy kind of going guy. But when it actually came to uh, his funeral, uh, the amount of sort of, uh, you know, it'd be high lamas, but these were high Zen priests that came and their brocade. And uh, it was an incredible experience. But what was behind it was this truth, the truth of uh, impermanence that uh, we don't know. You know, and the practice here is fundamentally is getting to understand. And the thing, maybe the greatest piece of, of learning for me in this practice has been that truth. You know, it is kind of the uh, compilation of uh, that my mind uh, continuously is trying to solidify and make up a solid experience. I mean, that's the nature of my mind. It's always looking to create some kind of safety uh, in how it is. And things can come along and knock us off, but that's its function, you know, in some way. And the practices, you know, in essence, um, uh, just our capacity to begin to see that there is a untangling going on here of seeing the truth of impermanence, you can see it all the way to the fact that, um, you know, you are impermanent. Uh, Your time here uh, is uh, limited. And that that can bring a sense of, uh, uh, I know for me, when I was looking at this idea of uh, spiritual immediacy, that somehow uh, it's true. Uh, that we need to uh, look so, at such detail of how we construct this world and that the process here is to see that somehow that there is this arising and passing away uh, that is uh, in essence kind of a, a microscopic reality uh, that uh, we actually experience here. And that it is really the bedrock of uh, uh, what these teachings are all based on. Is that uh, no matter where you turn or how you turn, you're going to be presented over and over again uh, with this reality, you know, and this uh, characteristic and this truth. So, description here. There's this river, and I called this bones in the river. And the way I can talk about this is that uh, we have this truth that uh, what we know is that through our observation and our experience that uh, what may appear to be solid and that our mind is always trying to make it somehow solid, that there's something going on, something else that's bigger that's going on. And so uh, my simile or analogy of the river uh, is the way I can kind of hold this and talk about it. So uh, there is this river, and we could call this river separateness. How's that? Sounds good enough. Or maybe you could call it the river of fear, because underneath all this, 
when you start looking at impermanence and you start looking at, you know, the consequences of clinging or attachment, or you start looking at the fact that uh, who am I and, 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 you know, what is it that's operating here? Then there is the truth that um, there is this river and this plain and, and so many human beings. Uh, what is their relationship to that? Is that river a separateness or fear? Is they want to get as far away from it as possible? You know. And so they go and they kind of build their houses as far away as they can. But we all know that this river, whether it's you know a diagnosis or whether uh, it's someone else, that eventually there's going to be a flood. And that flood is going to come and it's going to go through that house. It's going to destroy the carpet. It's going to take the furniture. You know. And it's interesting because it happens, this flood happens over and over again. And each time that flood comes, uh, what happens? You know, there's this huge denial and we say, oh, let's get some new carpeting and we'll get some new furniture and we'll simply go out and um, recreate, you know, uh, what we see as our security. You know, that's what we do. You know. And so at some point, and this is what we're all doing here, is we all realize that somehow that's not good enough. That we see it over and over again. And, the, you know, uh, we may replace the furniture and the carpeting and whatever, and you know, um, but we know the flood's going to come again in some manner, some fashion, you know. So there has to be some way of turning and saying, okay, I have to look at this river. I have to actually go and uh, check it out. And it's really this whole spiritual journey is somehow going to check out the river, you know? And at first we get to it, and, and, it's, and you know, yesterday I was uh, with my friend who, uh, in Mill Valley, and we were walking up uh, through the redwoods there, and the, the amount of water you know, coming down into the creeks, the flow is is just remarkable. You know, uh, there's a lot of water. <laughs> you know, and uh, I'm sure there's. Oh, I heard that the up in Squaw Valley, there's like 50 feet. Of, well, that was before these two storms. 50 feet of snow. 50 feet. That's you know, it's a lot of snow. You know. You know. So back to the river, anyway. <laughs> you know, that part of our practice is we turn towards a river and one of the things we see is it's, it's, it's flowing fast. Uh, there's no way that, uh, you know, uh, it churns up stuff so we can't see the bottom of it. And there's some sense that we've been told over time that somehow there's the opposite shore, that we can actually uh, somehow... Um, achieve or get there on some some way. Now, it's kind of tricky, though, and this is what's tricky about it, is that um, one thing we know it's true because of these simple characteristics, you know, is you can never get in the same river twice. You know, it's something that's always moving. So even that awareness or consciousness, you know, this uh, mind full of what's here cannot step into it in the same river each time. So it's always something new and it's the same way we can't step into these bodies or this place as the same thing, you know. And when we begin to see this, there is this whole process that we start going through. First of all, of course, we can't see the bottom, so you tiptoe out a little bit. And uh, we realize, oh, you know, uh, it's possible that, you know, all of our attention we go, oh, maybe I'll go out in the water a little farther. And then somewhere out there, uh, there is a sense of, um, you know, um, you know, maybe your toes are kind of hanging in the sand or mud and, and you realize that, you really need to have that sense of ground, you know, even though it's moving by so fast. 
And the practice here is really the fact that uh, we begin to recognize that there's some possibility here. And the possibility is not about uh, struggle, uh, but about somehow we can't stop the flow. You know, this is the simple truth. You know. And so there is a sense that, okay, um, what is it like to, uh, when suddenly I put my foot up and I'm pulled down stream? You know, what happens? You know, our first reaction uh, is to get our toes back and hold on and tight. And, and then we begin this uh, interesting process of working with the, um, the direct experience uh, of this a truth that um, we have this tendency to, first of all, to deny impermanence, that uh, that flow of things is not, um, that somehow um, it's true and it's not true. And so there is this kind of going back and forth with it. And also we begin to recognize that, oh, you know, uh, there we're being pulled along and, and there's uh, maybe some, you know, some rocks or something that we see and we go, oh, you know, if I can hold on to this rock, you know, or this tree root, then, you know, uh, particularly if it's pleasant, you know, uh, then it'll work out. But the water's still pulling you. And the thing is that that's that kind of holding on. Uh, we simply uh, note that there, that kind of struggle in a sense of trying to hold ourselves from the flow itself. You know what it's called. You know. It's simply this truth that uh, uh, that holding on uh, that uh, ability to attach or cling or uh, is suffering, you know. And so we begin, we're working these two things at the same time, the recognition of the impermanence and that comes on the door and kind of makes it apparent. And then there is the kind of counter truth to it is that when uh, we're not uh, kind of awake to that, that this Vedna, this truth of the kind of pleasantness and unpleasantness of things, and if we want to control and hold it in a certain way, you know, what happens? You know, the message is uh, just the truth, you know. as we begin to become more comfortable, and all of you I see here are in this uh, flow and the truth of this, and you see your old, what is it, your old, um, what was it? Bundled up inside your own memories, you know, your own desires. And here, there's really nothing happening here. You know, uh, this is not something that's uh, anything outside of the fact uh, that uh, we have created this container. This container is, is really built and based on the fact of minimizing anything uh, as much as possible to come from the outside. Actually, uh, in its ideal state, uh, you are here alone. You know, looking at your own mind and its own reactions to a minimal amount of stimulus. You know, that's what we're doing here. This river, as we become more comfortable, 
in the fact that somehow we know the shore itself uh, is, uh, in, in essence, kind of unstable. You know, because uh, these big waters are going to come down. Uh, unbeknownst to us, uh, without any, you know, sometimes, uh, um, you know, pre-information. It just kind of comes. And so we decide, oh, well, maybe I can step out a little farther. You know? And this stepping out a little farther means that somehow those toes that are kind of hanging on uh, and that when you let go and you kind of get pulled by the pull of, um, what is it, just truth, you know? Maybe, or you could say the river is also time, you know? Just time flowing. That uh, there begins to be some kind of um, recognition, some kind of uh, trust that uh, begins to happen. And at some point you're going to actually try to swim, let go. The only thing is that we're not accustomed to that. What we're accustomed to is kind of making ourselves up into um, this uh, kind of concretized self in some way. And so in doing that, uh, that as soon as uh, we are simply part of the flow in some sense, we panic, you know. The no-name teacher comes, teaching to hold nothing. Flow is possible, maybe the old small panic. I can't swim, I can't breathe. Abandoning the possibilities of freedom, totally forgetting that the river can't be stopped. So uh, we're all here, in a sense, playing with this. And it has to be that it's not one way or other. We just simply, at moments, uh, we learn that we have the capacity uh, to uh, kind of let go and be pulled. Pulled by time, you could say. But our instinct is actually that somehow there has to be something that holds on to all this. No. And uh, understandably, so there is this play that begins to happen between this panic of, of uh, I can't swim, I can't breathe, to this beginning to sense that, you know, there's no real control here. Uh, this flow is, you know, due to the causes and conditions, is simply what is occurring, you know. And in this environment, uh, where there isn't outside stimulus. And there's enough wherewithal to create a steadiness that doesn't let us totally uh, drown. That we begin to create a instinct. And that instinct is actually towards uh, trusting uh, something that at first seems not part of our nature, you know, instinctively. Instinctively, somehow I have to struggle to get this, you know. And it's something to do with, you know, the ideals of uh, kind of perfectionism. You know, that somehow getting it right. But actually, as we play with this and we work with this, it's not about that. You know, it's actually this capacity uh, to, uh, you know, uh, not to go towards shore, you know, not to uh, struggle and fight it, but actually to begin to simply uh, learn this process of letting go, you know, or letting it be however it's true for you, because 
letting go is not something that we can do. You know, it's just something that if we let things be, there is this process that uh, happens, you know, without us. You know, so we begin to go through this process of learning about trust and trusting in the fact that. Um, that we have the capacity to float on some level. You know, a Pema Children has this line uh, of uh, kind of the same analogy of what is it she uses? Uh, grabbing onto the inner tube of self. You know, that that's kind of our nature as we try to do that. But the instincts here. Uh, where you are now in the sense of the settledness and what um, I hope is possible is that we began to trust the simple difference between uh, the practice on the level of um, doing something to an instinctual trust of experience itself. You know, uh, that you can kind of fall back and rest and recognize that uh, you have this capacity uh, which has to do with these characteristics to float. You know. I remember this was uh, some five, six years ago, I went to my teacher in Dharamsala at the time, and I remember uh, this was the beginning, I was there for about four months, and. So I had an interview with him. I went in to see him, and he said, "Oh, you teach." And uh, and he said, "Well, oh, what do you teach?" And I said, "Well, uh, I teach Buddhism." He said, "Oh, I do too," you know. <laughs> and um, it was a very interesting conversation. And he said, "Well, you know, it, it just comes down to what he called the four seals." And he said, "Do you teach the four seals?" And the four seals were simply impermanence, the nature of suffering, uh, the truth of no self, and nirvana. You know, and these were what they called the four seals. And that in all this, that we have to recognize that these kind of bedrock, this is the bedrock of these teachings. And that as we begin to explore them, uh, we can actually go in essence, kind of below. So we have first, I would like to just, and this is again, kind of my own, this comes out of the, the suttas, but um, it's a somewhat esoteric uh, piece of it. And one of the things is we begin to look at the impermanence, we begin to see how there, that it's all a construct, and that our, our whole nature of uh, making up uh, language is uh, a construct, uh, a, we impute uh, what we see through our language on things, you know. So we actually have a deconstruction process going on here. And that deconstruction process is the fact that we stop kind of, in essence, kind of believing the solidity of our own languaging. You know, and so we begin this process, and this process is based on deconstruction. And so you begin to deconstruct uh, your own language. Uh, your, um, you know, in the in the suttas, they there's a teaching where um, uh, actually a Indo-Greek a king named Melinda uh, asked this monk uh, Sanguseno. Uh, Questions. In there, one of the things is he talks about the chariot. And it's a kind of a classic example that we have to take. And he says, well, is the chariot the wheels? Uh, is it the harness? Is it the horse? Uh, is it the seat? And so he goes to this question, and each time, um, Lena says, no, it's not that. And so ultimately what's happening there is a deconstruction. And when we say impermanence, that we actually begin to deconstruct it, deconstruct our world. Uh, And it's interesting, they say, well, to go to the smallest particle. 
And the smallest particle, uh, and they talk about it, is if, a, if there is a particle, it has to have directions, you know, four directions. But wonder if you deconstruct those directions. Where, where do you go? And so this deconstruction ends up, in essence, uh, why this word sunyata comes out of that investigation that's happening that we, we kind of sit and deconstruct uh, our thinking, our language, you know. Uh, you know, one of the uh, things, I, whenever I, I tell this, I, um, I was, uh, when I was very young, uh, I was in Guatemala and El Salvador until I was about four, and there was some kind of revolution there. And, um, you know, and the story is, you know, there was one of those last-ditch DC-3s that flew to Mexico City and then on to the States. And in that process, uh, something something I've never really figured out happened. But I stopped speaking, you know. And so for a year, from four to five, I actually was uh, in a school for autistic children. You know. And uh, I always joke and say it was my first retreat. <laughs> you know. And... But I realized that there was something about whatever happened then, and I've gone back to therapy and all sorts of things, but what I actually know is that it helped already this process of deconstruction, you know? And that, but I didn't understand, I only understood a part of it. And the other part was actually getting to uh, this word sunyata, that uh, when you break it all down, you take everything apart that there actually is no thing, you know. And in a way, it's a great relief to realize that, you know. Uh, this last summer, I was up in Ladakh uh, sitting and stuff, and, and uh, a place I keep going back I love greatly. Uh, even though I learned the the... What was it? It was a really hard retreat because the second night I was there, uh, in the, probably somewhere between 11 and 1, uh, the, there, the storm came in and it was so fierce. I've never been in a storm like it. It was so fierce where the thunder and lightning just kept going. It didn't stop. And it just, it just, I mean, it was a deluge, and you're talking about a desert that only gets a few centimeters of rain a year. And this was in the beginning of August. And usually there are rains, or they get anything. It comes in, uh, in the wintertime, and therefore is snow. And when it's snow, then uh, it then you know, comes down slowly as it melts down through. But this came all at once. And probably what you know is about Pakistan. You know, that, that the Indus River, this was right by the Indus River, you know, up at a, you know, almost 12,000 feet, it just took and, and tore everything apart, you know. And uh, literally hundreds of people, there were 29 Westerners that uh, were just swept away, you know. And uh, it was such a, a um, first of all, Asanga Sandha, the, the monk there said, you know, uh, at the time, my partner and I said, well, we're, we're going to leave. You know, this is, and I actually didn't say that. She did. And I kind of went, well, let's just see what's possible here. And he, and there were, and on the grounds there were, there were like 400 kids in school and there was a old person's home. There was a hospital and uh, much of it was just covered in mud. Very much the description I just gave you, you know, of the river. And um, he said, no, uh, I want you to stay. And I, I want you to, essentially he said, I want you to pray. You know? And for him, as a, uh, you know, as a Theravada monk, uh, that meant sitting and walking. You know? And so that, the decision was just to sit and walk. You know? And at the same time, this is right by the burning gods. 
And so it was one continuous teaching of impermanence because they just brought bodies up there and there would be a day after day, uh, there would be uh, this uh, burning going on, you know? Just the way, you know, the truth of what we live in, you know? And we have to remember this. This is part of our practice of recognizing the, the impermanent truth of this life, you know. And um, it was hard retreat because, uh, again, we had problems with water, food, and um, and my heart was totally moved by the uh, the power of nature uh, and uh, how uh, it can come. I mean, this is, I never knew whether it was just, it hadn't, there was uh, one of the doctors there that worked at the hospital. His father was 103 and he said, never seen anything like this. You know, and is it just climate change? Uh, that was one, the Indians had three kind of things in the paper. One of them was climate change. Uh, another was it was just a freak storm. And the third was that there had been seeding because Beijing was having a Beijing was having a dry spell maybe that they had seeded the clouds and somehow they had, it had made it that far. But I, I don't know anything. All I know is of the destruction. You know? And that um, we are subject uh, to... Uh, our world is subject to this impermanence, subject to the suffering. And that uh, the teaching here, ultimately, you know, as we go down and we begin to see that, you know, this place of sitting in the sunyata, that we can somehow, in our experience, uh, there is the possibility of breaking it down and letting go. You know? See if I can find this. Uh. Buddha, when the sun rises and a shaft of light has entered by way of the window, where does it land? On the western wall, sir. And if there is no western wall, on the ground, sir. And if there is no ground, on the lake, sir. And if there is no lake, it does not land. In the same way, when there is no passion, consciousness does not land or grow. That is free from sorrow. So, this fact that we have to sort of break things down, and uh, recognize the um, the instinct to construct and our nature of through this stillness and quietness is it true or not you know, is that so so this is Andrew Harvey uh, how I got off on this little tangent uh, was about Ladakh Nothing. Emptiness, sunyata. There's no real self. There's no final identity, no God, no son, no absolute, only sunyata. There are two ways of saying sunyata, the Rinpoche said. You can say it harshly and you can say it gently. You can say it so that it sounds like the iron hand of death beating on the door or like waves fanning out and whispering on the seashore. When you say it the first way, you tremble slightly, because you understand that to know emptiness is the end of the ego. You have cherished and you are afraid. When you say it gently, you are happy, because in the experience of emptiness, spaciousness and freedom 
is nirvana. To be freed of a false perception of the self is the end of Buddhism. To realize that there is nothing and no one is also to understand that one is everything and in everyone. That there is no death, no fear, no pain, no separation. You know, and sometimes I, in my own experience of in the sense of breaking it down, is uh, in that breaking down, uh, there is a sense that because it's a deconstruction, that there is a negation there. And I think sometimes in, in the West, our language, uh, somehow when we use that word, uh, it has somewhat of a nihilistic tone to it, or in a sense kind of denies uh, the truth of things. You know. So that's just, in a sense, the kind of flavor, and I think it comes from the word, because you could also say, when you break it all down, it means that if you sit in the center of that, it also means that there is all potential here. Anything can arise out of that, You know, is another way of looking at it. It's totally uh, this possibility. You know. So not to limit it, in the sense of that negation. Now, it's interesting, and, and for me, the, this uh, looking into the truth of uh, kind of the contraction or the struggle or the suffering and how we, um, in a sense, uh, first of all, it's the first noble truth. We have to uh, look directly at it and see uh, how, you know, they talk about it as the two arrows. Uh, the one arrow, uh, for me, was just, you know, the body uh, is just the river. Uh, what in the kind of aggregates that uh, Lila talked about, there's also uh, the mental formation, how I make up who I think I am, you know? And that uh, somehow that in this process, again, that we begin to see the nature uh, of how we construct. I, I understand that, that first arrow, there's not much we can do about it. And that is just nature. Whether it's the, you know these uh, terrible rains that happened in a desert uh, up in the high Himalayas, you know, uh, it's just nature. In the same way that uh, for me, you know, going through this thing of going in and, and, and going through all this questioning and realizing that, you know, the, this thing around um, a bone scan uh, was, uh, a, you know, kind of like a death warrant on some level. So there was a great piece of investigation there that I'm actually really thankful for, you know. And by actually going through that, the, later on going through, you know, kind of trying to find the right surgeon, going through all this other stuff, was so different than those five days when I had to look at how the construction is, you know? And it came along as a flood that kind of tore everything out of the house, you know? And I don't wish that on you, but I also know that's the first arrow, you know? We're all subject to this at some point. And... Um, And if we see our nature in it, we can actually begin to break down. And this may not make so much sense to you, but when you really look at the nature of the struggle and of suffering, you get to a place that's actually free of it. And it's really where the second part, you know, when you kind of take uh, the impermanence and take it down to its fundamental level, you end up in this emptiness. And you just kind of uh, have to, in a sense break it down and let go and say, you know, this is all construct. You know. Then the other is actually this, this thing around the suffering and how, uh, yes, it's inevitable in that first arrow and the second arrow are constructions around it. But if we actually follow it down, you follow it down uh, when you're totally uh, in sync or aware of its nature. Uh, there is this word tatat, which simply translates as suchness. You know, 
what is suchness? You know, it is saying that things are the way they are. And somehow there is a yes to the universe. You know, oh, it is the way it is. And uh, I understand its nature and the consequences of the first arrow and the second arrow. And that uh, when I take it down to uh, its bare minimum, this is a subtle characteristic of it, is that it's, oh, yes, you know, hey, this is the way it is. You know, and I can get lost in it and say, oh, how terrible. Or I can say, oh, this is the way it is. And there is an, uh, really a state of equanimity. But it also says yes to this. You know, it's not a denial of it, but actually an accept, a full acceptance uh, of this whole process. You know, And so uh, we can hold it, the suchness as it is. You know, and um, it is a uh, marvelous uh, truth to come to, just like the emptiness in a way is a um, uh, that deconstruction. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of uh, just kind of freedom and, and, and saying I can kind of let go of the walls and let go of uh, uh, the thingness of, of all of it, you know. And that I can kind of own the truth of the river itself. You know. So now the last little piece here. There's a word atamayata. And atamayata translate is not there with the object. Okay, this is and to me is kind of the pinnacle of the Buddhist concepts. Because uh, we start off with this uh, recognition that in the impermanence and in the struggle, that we look, we have this belief, and there's, it's not denying the relative truth of the self. But when I talk about the absolute truth of that, and the Buddha was looking at the universal truth, is that in that we actually begin to question, you know, who am I? You know? And, uh, how, you know, what is the flavor of these constructs? And is it just part of an impermanence or maybe an emptiness? Is it part of a, uh, you know, the struggle and, um, you know, just the way it is? And so we first recognize it's uh, not anything, you know, in the in the old language, it was uh, Atman at the time of the Buddha. There was something that, uh, you know, was soul, solid, something that was, uh, in a sense, that moved on. But seeing it as part of this river, it's not something that moves on. It's something that appears and disappears out of our conceptual uh, reality, our relative reality. And so we can, in a sense, kind of begin to, to let go of the process here, which is really going from unconsciousness self-consciousness, and a lot of this is just working with the self-consciousness to simply consciousness, you know. And what's taken out of that is the thinning out or the wearing out of uh, this concept self, you know. And when we take it down, then there is the question here, there's something that's aware here. And when you let go of all of this, you know, uh, what is it that's there? Is there still just simply this knowing that holds this in some way? And it's no longer two things. It's not this and that. The atamayata is actually letting go of subject-object. But it actually is a non-dual experience of just, uh, you could say, just the mind itself, the nature of the mind. Uh, when it no longer... Um, needs any affirmation in the river itself. So now, what you going to do with this? (laughs) What you going to do with it? This is in so much kind of the pinnacle of... uh, 
a, a very practical path because ultimately you're going to have to see that it's not about going back to shore, but it's actually your willingness uh, to test yourself to see, do you float? You know, is floating something that uh, you can do? Is that possible? You know. And by the way, you're still going to go over the waterfall. Anyway. You know, you can't do that. But there is this possibility of learning. And what is it that's, it says, oh, I can learn to kind of trust that there is a buoyancy uh, that's in my nature. You know. Uh, that is not part of the construct, but is part of our, you know, you could say our original nature, our basic nature. Okay. I'll let you play with that. Bones in the river. Oh, by the way, I'm fine. I'm still, there's still a lot of mountains out there. uh, Bones in the river, rain cascading down. The heavens have opened, bundled up inside my own memories. Water rushing, moving through me swiftly, tiptoeing across the surface of my breathing, pointing towards our own hospitality. Destined to reach my own underground, a place where I can let the rain soak through my clothes, skin, flesh, to these very bones. Dharma, not different than rain. Truth, soaking through the layers of my own being. Truth, soaking through the layers of my own being. Celebrating its silence, and strength reaching the marrow of our bones. All judgment left on the surface. The outward bathed in calmness. The inward resting in its original nature. The eyes smiling at all things. The no-name teacher comes teaching us to hold nothing. Flow is possible, finally, in a gentle voice. Yet, resistance, uncertainty, maybe the old small panic. I can't swim. I can't breathe. Abandoning the possibilities of freedom, totally forgetting that the river can't be stopped. Just molecules dancing towards infinity. Just molecules dancing towards infinity. Deep down, being earnest and loyal. Opening to this cascade of remembering Dharma has touched these bones. Knowing separateness to be untrue. The gift from these practices, the gift from these practices, simple trust. This surrendering and stillness, determining it's possible just to float in the aloneness of one's own river having been touched by all small loves, having been touched by all small loves, knowing you belong to this place. You open both arms, knowing the smallest entry, knowing the smallest entry could give rise to this great love, could give rise to this great love. You know, the one that holds everything 
and no thing. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention.